taken a quick survey. I wanted to add this this morning and, and did not. How many of you are 30 years of age or younger? Connie? <laughs> the reason I ask that is if you're between the ages of 18 and 30, you are a millennial. You know that. America's largest generation. America's mission field. And we're not doing a good job of reaching and retaining our millennials. As the Baptist Network Northwest, we want to change that. These are young people who are our future. We've invested a lot of resources in Sunday school, Vacation Bible School, Awana, student youth groups. And then we just kind of forget someone when they turn 18 or 19. We're going to change that. I want to see what God can do as we reach out to this largest generation in America. In 1926, my grandfather attended a service at Brown Street Baptist Church, heard the gospel clearly for the first time, and as a 20-year-old man, gave his heart to Christ. That's my heritage and my roots. That church has been involved in my life from then until now uh, as a supporting church when I was a missionary, as the church that my family was part of, my extended family. And I guess I'm a Baptist by tradition, and then I went to Bible college, I went to seminary in Tacoma, and I'm a Baptist by conviction. There are some things that I'm very proud of as far as being a Baptist. Soul liberty, that the Word of God is our only authority. And there are some things about being a Baptist that I'm a little bit embarrassed about. Um, I said I grew up in Baptist church. The church that I grew up in had a reputation, and they'd earned that reputation. Um, no one ever described them as loving yet. Maybe someday they might, but they have, they're only 150 years old. They're still working on it. And they're, they're pretty good, though, at um, expressing their point of view. I grew up thinking it was normal for two deacons to step outside during a business meeting and settle that. And for someone to stand and turn to someone else and say, why don't you just shut up? In a godly way. And some of those meetings were pretty exciting for a kid to watch. And God's working in my heart saying, you know, Don, I kind of like to take you from the farm to serve me full time. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I don't want to be a Baptist pastor. All they do is referee fights. And it happens. And it's not normal, okay? It's not supposed to work like that. That's an aberration. That's when it goes wrong. That's a less than ideal. So I want to focus your attention this morning in the book of Acts. And they weren't Baptists yet, so they weren't really good at this stuff. But they kind of had opinions and kind of had positions and they kind of had discussions that were lively. So Acts 15, let's begin reading in the first verse of Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas 
and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There was a question, a discussion, a debate, a problem to be solved. A question we ask and answer today. A question that should be in the front of our minds as we gather in this place to worship. Am I forgiven? How am I forgiven? What have I done? What do I do? What must I do to be sure that God forgives? There's no greater question, no important question. All of us are terminal. We live for a while and we stand before God. How do we know We're forgiven. That's the question. As the story unfolds for us, it begins in Antioch, north of Israel, in a church that was alive and exciting and moving forward. And somebody said, it's too good to be true. They must be cutting a corner. They must be doing something that we're not doing because they're really seeing God work. So the fellows from Jerusalem came up and said, make sure you don't forget to include all of the necessary steps to be forgiven by God. They said, first, be circumcised. Second, keep all of the law. I love the way the text says it. And there was some debate. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul, not a big guy, with his finger in one of those guys' faces and saying, you do not have to do anything to earn God's forgiveness. And the guy's saying, yeah, but yeah, but Moses gave us the law. Yeah, but the Jewish tradition is. Yeah, but for all of our lives. Yeah, but Paul, you're a Pharisee. Yeah, but Paul said, you do not have to do anything to earn God's forgiveness. That's a watershed question. They didn't solve it. The church in Antioch listened to the debate and participated in the debate and argued the points, and they said, we've got to take this up the chain of command. And so they went to Jerusalem, asked the apostles. Peter and James are both recorded speaking in this passage. They asked the elders, they asked the church, decide this one for us. Answer this question simply, clearly, and finally. How are we forgiven? I could pause there for a minute. 
and ask you the question, are you forgiven? Nothing more important. And I am so thankful for this passage because it explains and illustrates and gives us the example that it's too important not to get right. If someone comes to you and says, you're forgiven by believing in Christ and they're wrong. There is no and. Nothing else you do. So these Pharisees came to Antioch and and they were meeting Gentile believers who had never heard about much of the Old Testament, who'd never heard about all the tradition of the Jews, but who heard that there is a God in heaven who paid the price for our sins and we can be forgiven. They'd heard that and they had turned from their sins in repentance and placed their faith in Christ and only in Christ alone, not in any other good works. And these Judaizers, these Jewish teachers said, yeah, but it'd be better if you were circumcised. Whoa, that's a big ask. It's a big step. Scary business, that. I said, yeah, but it's it's important just to make sure. We don't want to miss out Maybe there's more than faith required. And as soon as you open that gate, the list never stops. They said, well, get circumcised and keep all the law. No one did except Jesus. It's not possible to keep all the law. So this morning we celebrated the table, and I love it. I, I have an itinerant ministry, different church every Sunday. When they know I'm coming, they adjust the time of the table to do it next week. I very seldom get to participate in the Lord's Supper, and I I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. We said this morning, we meditated upon our forgiveness in Christ. The fact that because His blood was shed, and His body was broken, and He gave His life for us, we are completely forgiven. We don't take his sacrifice and add to it to make it a complete payment for sin. doesn't work that way. That was the debate. That was the discussion. That was the problem. And the solution, Peter comes through with part of it here and he says, we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Stop. It's because of what he did that we're forgiven, not because of what we do that we're forgiven. We live there. We will rejoice over that fact for eternity. I love the way the discussion goes on. James talks about some things and makes a bit of a list. And As as he's making his list, he says, It's by grace. James is the ultimate Jewish guy. Righteous, holy, concerned. He says, it's by grace, but don't be gross. That's what he's coming through with. He says, this is some stuff that as a Jewish guy, I can't bear to watch. Because I understand political correctness a little bit. And it's always wrong to be prejudiced in any way, okay? 
That's my disclaimer. I have said that. I can't practice that. Neither can you. Our culture would say that old white guys like me have all the racial prejudice problems. We're the ones that have the issue. We have the issue, but so does everybody else. I don't care who you are. The other guy is different, and sometimes he's weird. And here's James saying, I'm, I'm sure these Gentiles are forgiven. I'm sure God loves them. I'm sure Jesus died for them. But they do things that are gross. So don't, don't do that stuff, okay? Come to Christ and, and clean up your act. And he, he gives them a list about um, all that idol stuff. Don't, don't even go close to what's going to happen, happen on, in the idol temple. Don't eat the meat from there. Don't Leave that alone. That was then. This is now. No more, okay? No more idol worship, all right? And he says, don't drink blood. That's not hard to give up. And so, but he, he says, I know how gross you Gentiles are. I've heard the stories. And he says, oh, we're Jewish and we're too good for that and don't drink blood. And don't strangle stuff. Go ahead and let the blood drain out of the meat before you butcher the cow. Or He didn't even mention having a ham sandwich, but he said, no blood in the meat. Get it, get it, get it drained out. And he says, don't practice sexual immorality. And you can almost hear his prejudice coming through. He says, uh, you, you, you Gentiles, I know how you are. And you don't, you don't understand what it's like to be holy and right and moral. And, and so don't be gross, okay? Don't do that stuff. And go, Jesus. And, and James sets the tone for them. So they wrote it down. They said, here's a letter. Take the letter. I don't want anybody to misunderstand. These are the words. We have a copy of the letter here, but no one has that letter. Would have been a great time in that letter to have explained to my friends who are covenant theologians that The church doesn't replace Israel. And that was kind of this discussion, wasn't it? The Jews were saying, church, Israel, how do those fit together? And later on, it's going to be explained in Romans that the church is the church and Israel is Israel. And they don't become each other. They're different. They could have at this time morphed a little bit and said that baptism replaces circumcision. That this discussion would have opened that door. And that's covenant theology. They did not say that. They said it's faith in Christ. Israel's Israel. The church is the church. And circumcision is not part of Christianity. Wow. They said all that. Set the tone, set the direction for us to follow. Wrote it down in a letter and did not lick a stamp. They had somebody deliver it. You have to understand some cultural things here. Congregation Antioch, maybe not everyone was able to read. Or not able to read 
that language. So they sent human beings, representatives. Their names are here. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, in verse 22, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And they said, we want this message to be personal. We want it to be humanized. This is not an edict coming down saying, we have decided what you must do. This is our understanding of what God wants us to do. We don't want you to miss the point. We don't want you to miss the tone. So it's not just words on paper. It's one person telling another person. And the way it would have worked is they'd have showed up in church that morning in Antioch, Judas and Silas, and they'd have stood and said, we have a letter from Jerusalem signed by Peter, signed by James, signed by the elders in Jerusalem. The question of how are we forgiven has been decided once and for all. Let's read that. You ever been there when somebody told the story and they kind of got it right, but they messed it up? They, they come across with the wrong tone. I was in a team ministry for a while in Australia with another American ABW missionary. And we are dividing up responsibilities. And uh, I was this senior missionary, and uh, it was my church plant before he showed up. And so he's working with me, but I'm lead and he's follow, I thought. And they don't always get that memo. And so he would lead the singing and he would give the announcements and, and I would preach. And we'd write the bulletin and get all the announcements there. It really matters how the announcements are given. I love this morning you were announcing, uh, come to a ministry fair. And there was a certain tone that was set. Did you feel shamed that you should go? Did anybody give you this? Wow. When my co-worker finished with his announcements in Australia on a Sunday morning, we knew we were dirty, lazy dogs <laughs> that didn't love God as much as he did, didn't care about what was going on around here, weren't doing our fair share, and ought to get off our backsides and do something. And I'm talking Australia now. You don't do that to an Australian. And it was demotivating. And I would do my announcement, the bulletin, and I'd say all this good stuff about we have an opportunity to serve Jesus and let's go work in Awana. And, and, and he, by the time he was done, he said, I ain't doing that. Not once, not ever, not, not again. You treat me like that. So when you choose two guys to take a letter from Jerusalem to Antioch that has to do with the gospel, be careful who you pick. Get a guy that's going to communicate the right tone. He's not going to come in and say, now you Gentile knuckleheads. No. He's going to stand up and say, my brothers, equally forgiven. You are forgiven completely. I am forgiven completely. We have the same Lord, the same Savior, the same faith based upon the same sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's me and you together. I just want you to know that. There are no second-class Christians. 
the Judaizers would have had that. They'd have had those who were Jewish and follow Christ, and those who were Gentile and follow Christ, those who were better and those who were worse. They didn't come out of this. They said it's by faith. I want you to take away something. There was a job that needed to be done. Somebody had to take that letter, set the tone, and Silas is the person that was chosen. I don't see him volunteering. I don't see him saying, hey, I can do that. But they said, we need somebody like um, you. And at that moment, you get to choose. When somebody says, there's a need, I think it's a job that would suit you and your gifts and your temperament and your personality and your situation. Would you serve Jesus this way? You say, oh, no, it's too scary, too hard, too, too much. Silas said, I would take that risk. I would risk the Gentiles misunderstanding me. I'd risk the Gentiles distorting my message. I would risk my reputation because the gospel's so important. Same gospel. Hasn't changed from then till now. And there's a time and a place and a need some days for somebody to stand for the gospel. Say, I, I, I can do that. I love Jesus, and I want you to know the truth about him, like Silas stood. Disrupted his whole life. I mean, if he had a job in Jerusalem, he left it. Went from there to Antioch, got involved with the believers. As the text goes on, his life took a big shift and turn. When God taps you and says, I need you for this, there's a right answer, and it's yes. I will let God use me. God needs just the right person for just the right job, and it's probably a person who looks just like you and me. Let God use you. Acts 15. Big debate. Big discussion. How are we forgiven? By faith in Christ's finished work. But for one chapter of the book of Acts, it's got two fights. As it goes on, the, the passage that was read this morning in 15, beginning in verse 36, Paul and Silas say, let's, let's go back and visit the churches and encourage the churches. In verse 39 it says, And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Another Baptist business meeting. Here's this team this missionary team. They have worked together in the past. They're buddies. They're friends. Barnabas is not Joseph's given name. It's his nickname. And the nickname means he's an encourager. This is a guy that anybody can get along with. If you can't get along with Barnabas, you've got the problem. And Barnabas and Paul are planning their trip and packing their bags and looking at the map and saying, did you remember this? Did you pack that? And Barnabas is saying, boy, this is a great opportunity. We're going to go visit these new believers. They're going to have questions about this and questions about that. And we're going to help them understand the gospel better and understand what God wants for them better and have their church move forward and, and grow. And it'll be fantastic. And we could get two birds and one stone here. We could go to encourage the churches 
and take along some young guys, do some mentoring, and they can see how we minister. We can let them share part of the message and be involved in some of the teaching, and then they can grow, and it'll be great. We'll expand our ministry, train another team, another generation. This is how it has to work. And Paul said, yeah, that's an idea. Who are we going to take? He says, here's the problem. John Mark was his nephew. His family thing. Little insider stuff going on. He says, remember my nephew? That good-looking young guy, he's so smart. John Mark. Paul goes, I remember him a little too well. I was there the day he was sticking out his bottom lip and saying, ain't going to do this no more. And it says in Pamphylia, he hit the path. He says, been there, done that, ain't doing it again. I said, whoa. Um, we were just down to Jerusalem, and we talked about um, grace. And that ought to translate. It ought to be a little bigger than just me being forgiven. Having been forgiven, I could forgive others. That's kind of an practical outworking of the truth of the Word of God. Barnabas says, Paul, come on. Grace. John Mark. Make it real, dude. Live it. Paul said, aw, can't. That was a heartbreak. That was a disappointment. That was a discouragement. That hurt the work when he backed off. Let him prove himself more. Down the road, someday, maybe I could include him, but ah, not now. And it says they had a strong disagreement. Quick question. Don't have to answer it out loud. But who was wrong? Barnabas or Paul? They disagreed. And from their perspective, the other guy was wrong. But they both felt the other guy was wrong. They both felt that they were right. And that happens sometimes. So you can forfeit your integrity and say, well, I thought I was right, but now uh, it's, it's okay, whatever. And then not live that out very well. These guys said, I'm convinced that my position concerning John Mark is the right position. And they said, well, can't agree with that. So Barnabas lived out his conviction and said, I will go on a missions trip with John Mark. And Paul lived his out and said, I will not. But he didn't go alone. You saw in the text... Who Paul took with him? Silas. Is Barnabas going to love you dearly because you chose the other side? It's an awkward place to be. But Silas said, Barnabas and John Mark can share Christ. They can go minister the word. And so can Paul and I. So Silas kind of stepped up and said, I'll let God use me like this at this time in this place. He's a servant. When I was 15, I bought Harold Romulan's used New Holland hay baler. Here was my idea. 
I'd take his hay bender, which was much older than I was, redo it, fix it up, and I would do custom baling, and I would do share baling. Here's how the shares worked. I'd mow your hay, rake your hay, bale your hay, pick up your hay bales. This was small two-string bales. Put half of them in your barn and take half of them home from my barn because I had some cows, and I, this is a great plan. So I got the baler going, and I'm 16 years old and running a crew and, and bailing over here and bailing over here and doing this and doing that. And one of the guys I would hire sometimes to help me stack hay bales in barns was a guy named Ronnie who was my age in my youth group at church. We knew each other from way back. Ronnie wasn't that good a help, but uh, he was available some days, and if he could put up with the noise, he was all right. So we're stacking hay bales in Mrs. Davis's barn, and the way it works is it, it's, it's just material handling. It, it's not rocket science. You take it from here, you put it there, it goes here, he gets, and it goes there, and it ends up stacked neatly in a pile like it's supposed to be. So Mrs. Davis can stick her head up there and say, that's good, my cows will have that to eat for lunch in the winter. So I was handing the bales to Ronnie, and he was handing them on to Jerry. Connie knows these guys, and if you put Ronnie and Jerry in the barn together without somebody to supervise, it's not going to work right. And so I was doing that and doing something else at the same time, and I'm handing bales to Ronnie, and I'm not worried about his feelings. I don't care if it's hot in there. I don't care if his gloves are too tight. It's not my... I just want to get the hay from here to there and back to the... Next thing you know, the Australians call it tools down. He put the tools down, calls a strike. We aren't even unionized. It's me and him and Jerry. And, and <laughs> this can't be, this won't be. He bails out of the loft, throws his gloves and... Dot, 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 and he could express himself very well. And, and Jerry and I are going, what? It's hay bales, dude. It's a job. You take it from here, you put it there, and you kiss it goodbye and never look at it again. It's not anything you get too emotionally involved in. But he didn't understand that very well. And it was hard for him, first, not to be in charge, second, to have to work as fast as I want him to work, and third, not to have his mother. So (laughs) it kind of went sideways and downhill from that point. Paul said, what we're doing is too important to take along somebody that's hard to work with. It's important. It's the gospel, man. We're not selling shoes here. We're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can't have somebody on the team that's going to slow us down, hold us back, or make the message difficult to understand. Barnabas says, we can live out grace. And Paul said, yeah, but not today. Not with that guy. I know him, and I can't. So they chose Silas. Hard job. Step in where somebody else has already had this problem, and you need to be secure and mature, unselfish, and say, I'm, I'm not here to prove a point. I'm not here because I don't like you or because I do like you. I'm here because I like Jesus. I'm here to serve Jesus. And again, can I make a little application? All kinds of good excuses as to why we can't. 
but there's good reasons why we should. Jesus Christ died, paid the price for my sin and your sin completely. And that message needs to go forth. No excuses, no ifs, ands, and buts. Let's serve Jesus. Let's share the truth. Sometimes you set your personal feelings aside. Sometimes you say, well, it's not a big deal. And sometimes you say, there's something more important here than my preference. And I want Jesus to be glorified through my life. I want lost people to hear the good news of the gospel. I want to serve my Savior because I love him. I want you to see one more part of this story. When the council in Jerusalem needed somebody to represent them and to share the truth clearly, they chose Silas. When Paul needed a team member to repair a broken team to move forward with the gospel, he chose Silas. If this was a proper story, it would say, and happily ever after. Doesn't. They went here, they went there. God led, God directed. And they ended up in Philippi. And that's great. As a missionary who's always looking for a reason to write a good prayer letter, the Philippi thing would have been a great prayer letter for Paul to write back to Antioch and said, wow, we didn't know what God had for us. God led us to Philippi, stumbled into town on a Saturday, and there's no synagogue because there's not 12 Jewish men in this whole town. It's ungodly. And we met Lydia. She's a Jewish lady, a convert from Thyatira. And she received Christ, and he received Christ, and they received Christ, and they told their friends, this church is growing like gangbusters, praise God. And then the next day, see, so they're in Philippi. And they go from here to here, and they talk to people, and they would have been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, challenging the unbelief of those who don't yet know Jesus. And they got noticed. They got noticed by a demon-possessed girl. Standard operating procedure. Move forward for Jesus Christ. Expect spiritual resistance. Who better to resist you than a demon-possessed girl? She's plugged in, turned on, and understands what's at stake. So these poor guys are moving through the marketplace, sharing Christ, giving a gospel track, talking about, come out next time we have a meeting, it'll be over here at somebody's house. And she's walking along behind them. Did you hear what she said? In Luke 16, she walked along behind them. Verse 17 of, Luke, of Acts 16 says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. How do you fault that? Absolute, complete truth coming from the wrong messenger. Everybody knew she was a fortune teller. Everybody knew she was demon possessed. Everybody knew she was a slave owned by some guys you didn't want to mess with. And she's wasting their time sharing the gospel. Drawing people's attention to the truth of the gospel. And finally, I love the way the text puts it, Paul had it up today. Here. He turned around and cast out her demon. Get out of town, dude. And she no longer was a valuable fortune teller slave. The guys that owned her didn't appreciate their loss of income. Complained to the magistrates, took Paul and Silas down and 
took him to court, made the accusation. They judged him, convicted them, and beat them with sticks. They didn't commit a crime. They may have lessened the value of somebody else's property, but it's not that big a deal. They were just trying to shut up the guys that had some power. So they beat these guys and said, is that enough? They said, no, one night in the stocks. Take Paul and Silas to the middle of the prison and put them in the stocks. You understand the problem with that. If you have tight hamstring muscles, which we all do, and you have to sit with your legs straight out in front of you, it's uncomfortable. It's hard to sleep. I'd remind you that the two men in the stocks are named Paul and Silas. Somebody gets me a beating, gets me the privilege of spending a night with my legs straight out in front of me in the stocks. I'm unable to sleep. I am in pain. I will share that with you. I will whine, moan, and complain. That's my job. Silas didn't ask for this. This wasn't fair. And you know how you feel when it's not fair. Did you see how they responded in Acts 16? Paul turns to Silas and says, you sleep? He says, yeah, right. He says, how about we pray and sing a little bit? It'll help me. Because it's going to be a long night anyway, and let's pray. Let's sing. You choose one. I do not know if Silas could sing. I have my doubts about Paul. Guys like that, you know, they're kind of driven a little bit direct. They don't worry about all the little dots on the page. They just belt it out. And they're belting it out in the prison after midnight. Silas chose to sing. He could have chosen to complain. He could have chosen to be angry, to be bitter, to be upset, to say, Paul, this is your fault. If you had not cast that demon out, we would not be here. Why would you do that to me? That was not his focus. He said, we came here for Christ, and we are here for Christ. It's a beautiful story. For the second time in the book of Acts, God opens the prison doors. He's not bound by the things that we think are impossible obstacles to overcome. Not my God, not your God. I guarantee you that the Apostle Paul was thankful that he was locked in the stocks with Silas and not someone who remained unnamed, who was less mature, less dependable, and sometimes whined. He said, this is what God has for us. And the jailer comes to Christ and his family comes to Christ. Did you notice a little detail? God chose someone to go with Paul who was Jewish and a Roman citizen. Not an accident there. Right person, right place, right time to be used by God. And it wasn't all just fun and games. There was a beating involved. There were stocks involved. There was a prison involved. There was a jailer involved. And there was the gospel. And God works just like that. Takes the right person, right place, and uses them. Connie and I worked in Australia about 20 years. And had about 75 different, we used to call them mappers. 
I stood for missionary apprentices. Uh, that's, that's an old-fashioned term. I'm, I'm old-fashioned. So we had college students from the U.S. come to Australia to work with us for a few weeks. One team was there almost eight weeks. You get to know them a little bit. Here's what I learned. Some little kid gets off the airplane in the Sydney airport, and they're super abundantly helpful and kind and sweet and nice, and they're just here to do whatever it takes. And I go, oh, no. They're faking it. That's not who they are. They're just trying to impress me so I won't give them a dirty job. And somebody gets off the plane and they're genuinely weary and they're missing their mama and it's a long way from home and they can't understand what the guy is saying over the loudspeaker because he has a beautiful Australian accent. And they're just kind of a little bit thinking, I don't know about this. That guy has potential. He is real. And he can take his reality and really serve Jesus. The guy who's faking it, who says, I'm just here because I love everybody, and you included. Don't even know you yet, but I love you a lot. And I just want to serve in every way. I want to serve in every way. I want to serve in every way. Oh, no. He doesn't want to serve in every way. He wants to be served. And I don't have time. And this is going to be bad almost always. If the person's not real, they cannot serve. You think Silas was real? If I ask you about the guy in the mirror, is he real? You know yourself well enough to say, oh, I struggle with things. I'm not always happy to take a beating. I don't like sitting with my hamstrings pulled too tight. It's uncomfortable to me. And I'd rather be in bed than in jail most nights. And yet, if God can use me, I'm willing to be used. I'm willing to take who I am, And you don't choose your parents, and your parents would have been the ones who were Romans, so you could be a Roman citizen. You don't choose the fact that your parents were Jewish, so you become Jewish. But God used his Jewishness and his Roman citizenship, and God made it possible for him to accomplish great things for Christ. Let me encourage you with something. Every last one of us is unique, valued. And God wants to take us as we are with our uniqueness and use us to serve him. He wants us to be real and he wants to really use us. We get to choose. I'd remind you that when the Jerusalem council needed somebody to represent them, they chose Silas. And he would have said, I'm able to be used whenever you need me. And they sent him to Antioch and then Paul took him on his missions journey up into Asia Minor. He says, I'm willing to be used wherever you need me, whenever, wherever. And then God let him go to Philippi. They saw the hand of God at work. They saw the power of God at work, and they got to suffer. He says, I'm willing to serve however, whenever, wherever, however. It's not about me. It's about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, it's easier to talk about being used than it is to serve. Give us hearts that serve. Hearts that aren't proud, hearts that aren't hard, hearts that aren't demanding, but hearts that are willing to be used of you. 
whenever, wherever, and however. Father, take us and use us, we pray, for the gospel. In Jesus' name.